it's been a work. It's it's taken time, but now it's to the point where I am completely, completely unashamed of of what I've been through, and I'm unashamed of even what I go through now. And I, I struggle with it still because even like this injury, it's been hard on me emotionally because and, and mentally because it. I've always prided myself on being enough and, and being strong enough and never wanting to p- appear weak. And I think that's the, that's depre- like that's the depression, like that's trying to keep everyone away. Hello and welcome to Making the Turn, a golf performance podcast. I'm your host, Vince Drumming. Super excited to have Andrew Jensen join us today for episode 11 of the podcast. Andrew Jensen is a Canadian-born professional golfer and also a YouTuber and public speaker. He is someone who is very big on mental health. He has his own story, but he's also helped a lot of people when it comes to being able to deal with mental health, understanding that it's okay to be able to talk about some different things. So we're going to have a little bit more serious episode today where we talk a lot about mental health in professional golf, mental health in sports in general. Uh, But Andrew also has a lot of great stories and a lot of things about his life and his golf that he's going to get into as well. Super excited to be able to bring you guys some great educational content, but also keep it entertaining as always. Once again, this is Vince Drum and Golf, and this is episode 11 of the Making the Turn podcast. Let's go ahead and get into it. Hats forward, headphones on, let's go. Awesome. Well, welcome back to the Making the Turn podcast. I'm your host, Vince Drummond and Golf. Super excited to be joined today by Andrew Jensen. Andrew is a professional golfer as well as a, a YouTuber in the golf space. So thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. Super excited to get into it. Uh, definitely want to touch on a lot of different things today, a lot of the things that you're doing. But why don't you just start by kind of telling everyone a little bit of, of your story, kind of how you wound up where you're at now, um, kind of your history in, in the game of golf, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in a golfing family. Like, my dad was a uh, Canadian PGA pro, so he was a club pro here in Ottawa. So I grew up on a golf course, started taking the game kind of seriously, at, I would say seriously, at, at 10 years old, and then always wanted to play professionally, wanted to play college golf in the States. But any scholarship opportunity I had was still too expensive to, for me to go on, on the money that I had saved for school. So I played college golf um, here in Ottawa was fortunate enough that our program was pretty good. We got to play a lot of NCAA golf in the Northeast all fall. And then the springtime, we would just have the national championship here in Canada. Um, And then just play a lot of amateur golf in the summer months, turned pro um, in 2008. I joined the Canadian tour in the fall 2007 Q school, played as an amateur and then turned pro that coming season. And then just kind of kicked around the Canadian tour for a few years, had some injuries had some health issues, um, and then took, took two years off, got back to playing in 2013. PJ Tour bought the Canadian Tour, so that helped a lot for um, eyes, noticeability, notoriety, credibility, if you want, and some of the health problems that I went through, I started speaking out about, and the PJ Tour paid attention to that. They did a profile on me, which then led to a lot of media opportunities across Canada, and um, speaking about athletics and sport and mental health and started doing that a lot on the side and still trying to play golf and then uh, just 
kind of kicking around wherever I can, play wherever I could, and then started a YouTube channel in 2017. And that's kind of been something that has, again, my like overworking attitude probably takes away from my golf game, just like when I was doing public speaking. But I think anyone that listening out there understands when you're a developmental tour level player, it kind of always comes down to money. So if you're doing something on the side to help you play golf, sure, it helps you play golf, but it takes away from your golf, but it's a necessary evil. So, um, yeah, just been doing that. And YouTube's been very helpful, beneficial for a lot of reasons. I don't know if it's helped my golf game a whole heck of a lot, but it's cool to be able to have a platform to help other people's golf games and just share my experiences with uh, younger players and hear about their experiences and hear and see people sharing when they've done good because of things maybe they've learned and how I practice. And it's, it's pretty amazing how the internet and, and social media is connect, makes the world a lot smaller. And then, um, yeah, that brings us here. I broke my arm or I broke my elbow three weeks ago. So now I'm just going through that recovery and getting ready to, start tournament play in may of this year i was supposed to start tournament play last week but unfortunately have to wait three months so may will you still be able to try to get into u.s open local qualifying and all that stuff yeah that's that's where i'm starting basically things up the three month mark for my surgery is the second of may which is when the bone heals i'll be able to start swinging a golf club like i'll be able to start chipping and putting when i get back to florida next week Basically, in March, I can start chipping and putting, and then by April, I can start swinging, and then by late April, I'll be able to like start taking divots. So I'll I'll be hitting shots off off high tees basically when I fully have range of motion. But then, um, yeah, U.S. Open qualifying and Canadian Open qualifying the first stage is the same week in Toronto. So I actually tried to sign up today, but their website's being really finicky because it went live today um yeah but that's that's what i've given myself as my welcome back and i don't know what to expect i really don't know i've never had an injury like this i've never had surgery before so i don't know what to expect if it's gonna affect my uh golf game or if i'm like being too naive to think i'll be like back to my regular self by may having not really swung a golf club for two and a half months. So I don't know, but at least us opening Canadian open qualifying is a inexpensive way to, to figure it out again. And then uh, hopefully I can keep playing all summer. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that, that I definitely want to get into before we get too much into the golf side of things and YouTube and all that kind of stuff is just kind of having you speak a, a little bit about some of the, the mental health type things in golf and, and in sports. Um, obviously I can link a, a couple videos down in the description that kind of tell your story in depth and in detail, uh, but just talk a little bit about some of the things that, that you're doing when it comes to mental health in golf, when it comes to mental health in sports and, and trying to kind of, help people and, and reach out in that regard yeah um just like in a in a nutshell basically the health problems i had in, in 2011 were years and years of of battling with depression but not knowing it was depression not accepting that it was depression and then in 2011 i, I did try to take my life a couple times and 
things changed and I started trying to get healthy and treating my mental health the same way that I treat my physical health. And um, I just felt compelled to talk about it because I was fortunate enough to, to be alive. And there were small little pockets of the internet and community on the internet that I, I kind of garnered a lot of hope from throughout those years. Like even my first year on tour, like I was struggling bad, but I didn't tell anybody anything. But I would kind of find some solace and some community um, on the internet and it's like message boards and just reading other people going through things helped me a little bit. So then when I went through hell, basically, I felt compelled that like, hey, I'm, I was fortunate enough to, to read other people's and, and hear other people's experiences. Why not share my own? And then it just so happened because I'm a, I, I, I use this word loosely, but because I'm a professional athlete, people cared. And a little bit of the athlete side of me, like the ego side of me, embraced that. Like it was great to feel that people cared about what I went through. Um, but it also was something that I, it helped me, but I used it to try to be beneficial to, to more than just me. And I, I took the opportunity and like the fact that I was given a platform because I tried to take my life and people wanted to hear about it. Well, I always go back to when I was a teenager and if people were talking about it, then would I have ever been in these shoes now at 27? And I probably wouldn't have been. So I just... I took it as an opportunity like, hey, let's let's talk about this. Because if I were a plumber or an accountant, no one would have cared, which is a shame. But that's why I'm speaking, because I'm trying to change that so that a plumber, an accountant, and anybody, if they're struggling with their their health, their mental health, their emotional health, they can talk about it openly, really. And that's just a, a calling, a passion that I've I've had now for six years and it's just it's I pinch myself every time that I'm given the opportunity to travel and talk about it and, and hopefully inspire some hope in in one person because at the end of the day like that's that's the reason I do it like if, if one person doesn't take their life because of something I said or something I've been through well then it's it's everything I went through was worth it for sure for sure um, talk just a little bit about pre 2011 versus now the things that have kind of switched for you, um, like from the, the mental side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, definitely it's just a big shift is like a sense of identity, but also shame. The shame spectrum has changed because pre 2011, it was always shameful what I was experiencing, what I was going through, I was ashamed of it and I didn't want anyone to know about it. Whereas post 2011, 2012, the shame side of things has always lessened. Like it's been a work, it's, it's taken time, but now it's to the point where I am completely, completely unashamed of, of what I've been through and I'm unashamed of even what I go through now. And I, I struggle with it still because even like this injury, it's been hard on me emotionally because and, and mentally because it. I've always prided myself on being enough and, and being strong enough and never wanting to appear weak, and I think that's the that's depress like that's the depression like that's trying to keep everyone away, 
but this is the ultimate. Like this makes me unable to do the things I want to do. So it's like, is that a weakness? Does this make me look weak? And those thoughts come, but they go pretty quickly because I think I've gotten over that, the shame side of things. And I think from that, you're, you're able to be more grateful in your day-to-day life and gratitude's huge, whether it's for the, the struggles or the victories. And I think pre-2011, I didn't have any of that. All I had was shame and then this like unrelenting quest to be good enough. And as a, as a professional athlete, you're good enough is when you perform. It didn't matter if I felt good enough because I ne- if I missed a cut, right? But if I made a cut and played well, then I was good enough. And that's a house of cards. And you're always going to fail. Like you're always going to feel not good enough because that is just too much pressure to try to perform as an athlete if your own worth is associated to that score. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's so powerful. And just being able to, to understand the difference between your worth as a person and, and the results that you have in whatever you're doing in your daily life. Yeah. It's super crucial to be able to understand that and, and see the difference. Um, talk real quick before we move on, just about some of the things that you're doing, whether it's with companies like Bell Let's Talk or, or some other stuff, uh, maybe just some of the, the resources and things you're involved with to, to kind of try to help people out. Um, as they go through their own battles and their own struggles? Well, I mean, I'm fortunate that in Canada, we have a campaign, Bell Let's Talk, that uh, Bell has has created and it's coming up on 10 years now. And I'm fortunate enough to be an ambassador for that program, so to, to kind of like fly um, the banner if you want. But what, what Bell Let's Talk is, is it's not a charity. It's just a campaign that raises money for all and all the initiatives across Canada in, in the mental health space. So it's kind of awesome to, to be able to be a part of that and help so many different organizations, big and small across the country. And, and from that, I've been fortunate enough to work with or um, speak, speak at or do golf tournaments with various organizations or even just small charities in Canada, but also now it is, it is branching out into the States, being able to basically add my voice to that conversation, maybe in a community that has been afraid to have that conversation or has now forced to have that conversation because something happened in the community where someone did take their life and the community is now saying, hey, we, we don't want this to be the norm. We want this to change. We want people to be um, aware that it's okay. And a few years ago, kind of on the golf tip, I was really lucky that the Canadian Junior Golf Association and I, we got to partner together and I did 10 clinics across the country talking about my experience as a player, but also talking about my experience with my health and then tying the two together, talking to 14, 15, 16 year olds about, you know, it's okay that if you shoot 85 to feel terrible afterwards, but it's, okay because you can talk to someone about it whereas like when I was growing up I shot a high score I'd be ashamed and you kind of reluctantly talk to your parent or your coach about it and but you almost wouldn't be really honest with how you actually felt you'd only talk about what went wrong in the golf but not actually how it made you feel and 
we're playing this sport where we do associate so much emotion to that golf score. It's really, really easy to stay buttoned up when you play bad because the irony is when you play good in golf as a junior as a college player as a professional golfer whatever when you play well people ask less questions right you get a pat on the back you get congratulations you did good good jobs but when you play bad that's when people really want to know what happened what went wrong da 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 da, da. and what that does to the brain is you don't like playing bad you maybe feel terrible when you play bad, but the bad golf gets you more attention than the good golf. And if you're already struggling with worth and identity, it's almost like this trap. And that's something that I struggled with so much because it's almost, you play bad more than you play good. And there's comfort in that because it's uncomfortable to play good because it's not what you do all the time. And then when you play bad, you seem to get more attention. And when you're 14, 15, your brain doesn't know yet. So then it's always this struggle. If you're struggling with something more, it's scary. And that was what was really cool about the Canadian Junior Golf Association to say, hey, we care about our kids' mental health, not just about them basically playing our tournaments and, and see you later. So that was a really special two summers to do things like that with, with the CJGA. Awesome. Uh, that is really cool. And I appreciate you kind of open up and, and sharing some of that vulnerability. I think it has the power to help a lot of people. Um, kind of switching back over to professional golf side of things, some of the, the stuff that you're doing now, um, obviously with uh, the broken elbow, that's a pretty big wrench in the plans. But talk about yeah. what that looks like as a professional golfer when you suffer an injury like that how do you kind of sit down and, and reevaluate and maybe try to retool what you're looking at or what your goals are for the upcoming season it's it's really hard like i think a lot of people don't understand kind of the the situations players at different let's say tours or different levels are in like i remember when i got tendonitis in 2010 so I struggled. That really was hard for my, my season. And I always make a reference that Mike Weir got tendonitis at the same time. Well, he was a master's champion with millions of dollars in the bank. So sure, maybe his golf game may suffer and may never come back. But at least he has like a nest egg, so to speak. Whereas when I got hurt, then I had to get a job. Like when you're even like, let's say a web.com tour player. If you get hurt, and you don't have the luxury of a medical exemption or enough money in the bank, it really does make you question everything. And like, I think if I had broken this the, the day after Q school, which I was supposed to play Q school in two weeks from now, if I had broken it the day after having gained status, at least I would have had some sort of medical where I would have known I would get starts next year when I'm healthy or at the, you know, when I become healthy, but breaking it before Q school, you have nothing. So now like I'm looking at a schedule, I'm looking at the, the small amount of money I have, I had allocated to play the start of my year, basically. Now I have to look at a different schedule, but this schedule doesn't really beget advancing. This is now a schedule that is just about 
being competitive and trying to be profitable. Whereas if I had, this didn't happen and I went to Q school and got status, well then my summer becomes, okay, let's focus on the McKenzie tour and let's advance because, you know, finishing in the top 20 on that money list, you get to bypass some of Q school and then obviously the higher you finish. So it's about advancing, especially at 34 years old. Like this was my, this is my last year. And if it's not a good year, I'm done. And then I break my arm in January. It could have been like, that's it. I throw my arms up. That's it. I can't do anything. But luckily I just made a promise with myself that I was not going to let this be it. And it's, I've, I've taken this really in stride, but I think it's something that as a developmental tour player in your thirties, you almost feel like you can't have setbacks, but you, it's, it's just the kind of the nature of this. If I were 24 and this happened, whatever, just kind of roll with it. But that being said, I got my tendonitis when I was 26 and you think I played through an injury because at, when you're below the PGA tour, you feel like you cannot take time off because you hear that all the time. Like, Oh, you're resting. Other people are working harder than you. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer, but I think it affects so many players. And that's why you see a lot of fantastic players never make it to the PGA tour, never make it to the web.com because essentially they, they ran out of money or they ran out of passion and it's really easy to lose your passion for it. If you're doing it not healthy because you just, you're pushing, you feel like you have to do it as opposed to, but I mean, as a player, why would you want to take the time off and be smart and be like, that's okay. And, but I have to actually go work a job. Like I'm literally hustling right now trying to find editing work like yes I can't golf but what happens when I can golf and I still need some cash to play golf well I have to work to be able to play golf but now I'm spending time away from golf because of work like it's it's really really hard so but like I'm not alone in that it's not just because of an elbow injury like there's hundreds of us every year that are struggling with something in your life be it financial personal or whatever that is keeping you away from your ideal schedule and until you have the luxury of being on the pga tour and, and fully exempt or maybe even fully exempt on the web.com tour <laughs> you can't really uh you gotta be really mentally strong to deal with any setback Definitely. Um, I think kind of moving right into the, the next question, kind of piggybacking off of what you were just talking about, how easy it is to lose that passion, how easy it would have been for you to just kind of throw your hands up and say, you know, like, I'm done, whatever. Talk a little bit about your motivation. What kind of keeps you going? What, what kind of allowed you as soon as this happened to, to take the positive spin on things and be able to say, like, I'm going to do the best I can and, and continue to move forward with this? Probably I'm just very stubborn. And I think there is a lot to be said about it. I've done it so long and almost like intermittently because I've had to take time off because I've had to work for four months of the year over the years. Um, it's a bit of stubbornness. It's a little bit of, I don't think I can do anything else. 
a little bit of I don't want to do anything else. And there's a lot of fear as well. I think there's fear of doing something else or fear of having to retire and not having achieved even 10% of your goals when you set out on this career at 24. I think that fear turns into that motivation and it could be healthy. It could be unhealthy, but yeah. Cause I think even, even yesterday after having legitimately yesterday, I pieced together a new schedule and like budgeted it and kind of like, all right, cool. Like, that's good. But then later that evening, like when I'm kind of sitting down, it's like, yeah, but what if I don't play well, then I'm done. And then from that, it's really easy to just go down that downward spiral because I think that is, maybe it's my own issue, but I think that fear is almost what propels a lot of the motivation. And I'm just naturally a stubborn and hardworking person. I think my parents, I wasn't like that growing up, but I think ever since things got really bad personally, um, when I was 27, I ha- I had to make a choice. Like, do I want to keep living like this or do I want to live a, a better life, a higher quality of life? And having to put so much effort into my own health allowed me to be able to put that much effort into my career. And I've just, I believe so much in, in the notion of just being a hard worker and being patient. But the patience is the hardest, hardest part because things don't happen on your time almost ever, ever. But you still have to be patient, but it's so easy. Like I just filmed a Q and A for the, ch- for the channel and like some question was like, you know, what do you think of all these young guys on tour? And it's like, well, A, there's young guys every year and the golf channel makes it seem like the game's getting younger and younger and younger. That's all they want to talk about. But it's easy as you get a little bit older to think, well, I'm not relevant. I don't have marketability. I don't have like the game. I'm lapped. It's easy to think that. But at the end of the day, like age really doesn't matter. For every young guy, there's guys in their 40s that play well. And if if you're playing well and you're on the PGA Tour in your 40s, you're doing okay. Whether you're lifting trophies or you're hitting it 350 it doesn't really matter like if you're keeping your car on the pga tour in your 40s life's pretty good so it's this constant almost like putting blinders up like i didn't play college golf in the in the states it could be easy to think well you're not going to be a good professional golfer because you didn't play in the ncaa well that that's the norm the quote-unquote norm it's almost like you have to i've always been putting the blinders up for my career and I just need, I just, just the patience needs to click really. Cause it seems like everything else that I put my mind to professionally, like be it YouTube or when I got, was really into speaking, it's always been like strength to strength. Whereas golf, arguably the thing I think I'm the best at, I screw up the most. <laughs> Having dealt with what I dealt with when it came to like, I'm, I don't know, what happened in 2011 wasn't an injury. It was a health thing. I mean, I, I almost lost my life. So breaking my elbow 
pales in comparison to that, I think. And maybe that's why this was a little easier to take, even though I've had a couple moments where like I've broken down because it's, it can be easy to think that I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, what this holds. Right. And it can be easy to think that maybe this is it, but I just have to let that go and just keep working on what's in front of me. And if it right now, it means three times a day doing little dinky exercises to get more mobility in my elbow. That's legitimately all I can do. And a lot of cardio, like that's it. I think it's just focus. The, it's easy to stay positive if you focus on what you can control and what's right in front of you. Awesome. Uh, definitely just from watching you on YouTube, getting to follow you a little bit on social media. I know you're a, a good storyteller, so I want to give you the chance to tell a, a quick story. Uh, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, just with all of your golfing experience, your professional experience, the Q schools, the different tours and events you've played in, uh, just talk a little bit about something that pops into your mind when we talk about being nervous on the golf course, whether it's for an event or something specific. Is there a, like a certain story that, that kind of pops up in your mind when we talk about being nervous on the course, dealing with a, a situation that makes you kind of feel that way? Pretty much, man, the most nervous moment I've ever had on a course was when I played my, <laughs> my first year on the Canadian tour. Um, the second event we played in Mexico, like I got like Montezuma's revenge. So my first shot, like I was wearing white pants and I thought I was going to my pants. That's the most nervous. And I like duck hooked it onto the driving range. Luckily the range was still in bounds, but that was actually this goes in. Yeah. That's that entire tournament. So this tournament, we were in San Luis Potosi, Mexico. Um, up in elevation, super windy, really hard. That first round, I hooked it out of bounds, or I hooked on the range, was still in play. I ended up shooting 74, two over par. And this was my third, fourth event on the Canadian Tour. I missed the first three cuts. And then I shot 74 the first round. I was in 19th place. Like, it was scoring was impossible. So the, the next day, it's like, holy shit, I'm going to make a cut, Right. So I play the front nine, I shoot three over, shoot 39. And now I'm like freaking out. What's the cut? What's the cut? What's the cut? Because this is 2008. You don't have live scoring on your phone. And it's my first cut. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to make a cut. I'm going to make a cut. Oh, no. What's the cut? What's the cut? What's the cut? What's the cut? So I shot 39 on the front nine. I shot 48 on the back nine. So I shot 87. I went from 19th to like 153rd. <laughs> I would say that's probably the, the most nervous moment I had, like the opportunity to make my first cut where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt I was inside the cut line and just letting it get away. That was definitely my most nervous moment, and I crumbled. But I learned from that because the first cut I made on the Canadian Tour that year, I, like, battled. I made some par saves in the last three holes to, to basically make the cut by one or two, and it was, like... I won the U.S. Open. I was fist bumping. It was awesome. But I learned from the time when I went 39-48. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit to the, the whole YouTube thing. Definitely have a, a pretty good following and create some really good content. But just talk a little bit about, obviously, professional golfer and doing YouTube. Do you see YouTube as, as something you'll continue to do past golf or is it something that is kind of supplementing your golf career at this point where do you kind of view youtube in, in the grand scheme of your future 
I think I don't have like a set like mold for YouTube, like as it, as it rolls, like I ultimately it's about doing something that you love to do. And like, even when I started the channel, like I made YouTube, I made three little YouTube videos in 2009. Like I've always been kind of like a, a storyteller. Like I wrote blogs in 08 and then in 09, I made a couple of videos on like a two megapixel, like Canon point shoot and they were terrible, but I just made them cause I, I liked doing it. But then I got inspired by Gary V in 2017 just to do this. And I said, I'll do it for six months. And if I like it, I'll keep doing it. And it didn't matter about numbers. So I did it for six months and I think I got like just over 200 subscribers and like basically my family and friends watching it and like people from Facebook, but I, I was enjoying it. And like, I was, I found growing as a creator, as an editor, as a videographer with every video. So it was just something that was fun to do and it helped pass the time. Like I was playing a busy schedule that summer and it helped, it was something to do on the road to edit. Cause I'd go sit at Starbucks and just download music before. Now it's like, I'm actually creating something and it would take my mind off of golf a lot too. Cause it used to be play around, go get some lunch, go sit down, get a coffee, do your stats and then just like dink around on the internet. And it'd be very easy to still think a lot of golf. Whereas now I was editing stuff and yeah, I was thinking golf, but I was thinking more like visual storytelling as opposed to my golf and making the little tournament recap videos that I was doing was cathartic as well. But then I found, yeah, I got lucky. I got a bit of a viral surge in the October. So like seven months after doing it and that kind of propelled me through the winter. Cause I saw finally, Hey, there's a little bit of money you can make on this. Like, cool. Like this is not a lot of money, but it was like, okay, this is something to do. And then it just kept kind of growing. And then with YouTube, it's, it's not like a constant growth, like it always plateaus and then goes and plateaus. But I think as a, cre a creative person, it's fun to try to stretch myself in that regard. Like, can I tell a better story? Can I edit better? Can I make these videos look better, sound better? And maybe the vast majority of the audience doesn't notice it, but I do. And I think some of my favorite videos are probably some of my least viewed videos. But in the YouTube space, everybody's very supportive of each other. And it's cool to be able to, to work with other guys and um, just play golf. Like, I'm fortunate, like, it's allowed me to play golf in different places. And I feel like I had to make the decision to take it away from specifically professional golf, like a, a look in, inside, because it was getting in the way, because it basically place like what I said earlier when you play bad and you're thinking about how you're going to talk about it to your dad or your parent that's what it became if I was struggling I was thinking okay how am I going to talk about this to the camera and I, I realized like that's just not good so I kind of went away from that and maybe some I lose viewers because of it but so be it um, and I'll just I mean if, if I'm going to keep doing it after golf or as golf continues, like I just cross those bridges when they come because the, the, the upside of it is I'm learning to be a better editor with every video and getting more opportunity. So it could be something that opens more doors if golf isn't the, the meal ticket in the future. But then it also opens doors if golf is 
continue, does continue to grow and I get to continue to play it for a living, yeah, it'd be amazing to keep doing it. It's going to be difficult to get because it's new media and you're competing against old media. So can't imagine a PGA Tour player with a YouTube channel will get a lot of promotion about his YouTube channel by the golf channel or et cetera, because that's making them go watch something else as opposed to watch their programming. But you look at tennis and then the Greek kid who did really well in the Australian Open a few weeks ago or a month ago, he's got a YouTube channel. He vlogs his life traveling, playing tennis professionally. And it's really cool. And the, and the coverage let him talk about it on the show. And it just opened up the tennis world to so many people. And I always envisioned because of being a Gary V fan, like, you know, he has someone that makes his videos, films them and edits them, like follows him. Like how cool would that be to have somebody following a tour player showing the side of professional golf that you don't get to see on TV. Definitely. Uh, so with your videos on YouTube, are you a, a one take guy or are you having to reshoot stuff all the time? No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty lucky. I think it's just from years of speaking and I did study theater in school. Like I have a degree in theater. So, and there's only one take when you're performing on stage versus when you're filming, um, you know, film or a TV show for that matter. But yeah, I mean, sometimes there's, it's, you retake because maybe the energy was a little bit low or um, you stumbled on your words, but I, I don't ever have like a script or anything prepared. And the thing with YouTube, you're talking to a camera, no one around and you do it so many times, like it just becomes very routine. Awesome. Um, appreciate you giving us a little bit of insight into that. Want to get into a, a part of the show that we like to do now for a little bit of fun. Uh, we call it the Twilight Nine. So it's yeah. playing nine holes, summer's evening, trying to beat the sun. Um, yep. Nine hole or nine questions, sorry, rapid fire, just kind of whatever pops in your head. Yeah, let's do it. Get it out and we'll fire through it. Awesome. Uh, lowest tournament score? 66. Go-to pre-round meal? Uh, well, Starbucks coffee and then – Probably like, yo, like, see, I cut dairy out now too. It's tough now that I cut dairy out of my diet. It's really difficult. Just some breakfast, like whatever. Like I don't have a routine for whatever breakfast I can find that doesn't make me feel like crap. Nice. Uh, favorite on-course snack? Uh, I mean, I was really digging what there was these bars that I got. Oh, they're like these vegan cookies, like Larry and somebody. I found those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found those a couple months ago. And yeah, those are pretty good. I think they would be my, my go-to, like these pro vegan protein cookies. I mean, they taste kind of like cardboard, but it's <laughs> fills you up enough. Because Cliff Bars after a while are disgusting. <laughs> what is your current pre-gym pump-up song? Oh, I don't have any particular because I just listen. I mean, I listen to so much music, but it's all like podcasts and it's all electronic music. It's all house music, deep house, progressive house music. So really, yeah, anything. I watch YouTube when I'm in the gym, pretty much. Like I used to be like when I'm working out, I just need a good, just a good beat. Uh, what's your hardest or least favorite exercise in the gym? 
man, I remember when I was training a lot, anything that's like calves or um, no hamstrings, like hamstring curls, extensions, hate those, <laughs> hate those. Uh, you get to the course and you only have 10 minutes to warm up. What do you do? Just, I've had that happen before. I've, I've slept through alarms. Like it's, it's more a mental warm up than anything. Like I just want, I'd have a few swings, just a good stretch and some, a few swings. I don't even need to hit a ball. If I only have 10 minutes, I just want to have a good stretch, but I'm making those 10 minutes. Like I'm making my mind as golf, as like as golf ready as possible. Cause sometimes when you warm up for 45 minutes, you're hitting balls, but your mind's just kind of still a little kind of coming into it's like the focus is narrowing in I you i would 10 minutes just serious serious stretching and mind is as narrow as possible in those 10 minutes and a few swings left-handed and right-handed awesome uh what's your golf brand of choice golf. well i mean i'm a tailor-made player and yeah um, I, I play tailor-made clubs and i wear adidas clothes so there you go perfect uh what is the best movie of all time Best movie of all time. Oh. Game of Thrones, because it's so good, it's like a movie. <laughs> and then what's your favorite sports team? Vancouver Canucks. Awesome. Uh, that yeah. is our Twilight Nine, a little fun segment that we like to do. To kind of, uh, let the viewers get to know you a little bit better. Uh, before we let you go real quick, a couple more questions just to kind of really um, help out some of our listeners. If you were talking to somebody who was just getting ready to start their professional golf journey, somebody who was looking to play professional golf and, and starting to make that transition, what would your biggest piece of advice be to them? I would say it, it, it'd be twofold. It, it, it'd be all about the support. Um, make sure you have the support in your corner. And that means like the emotional support from your friends and family and the financial support. Because if you're just going out with a little bit of cash, um, it's gonna be really, really hard because it costs a lot of money and there's not a lot of money to make. Like I get a lot of people reach out to me from the channel wanting to embark on mini tour golf. And it's like, you need a lot of money to do it more than you think. And, and if you don't have that, it's gonna be very, very hard. Just like if you don't have that emotional support behind you, it's gonna be, it's, that's arguably more important. Because if you have, you don't have people back home that believe in you and support you, come hell or high water, you're gonna be struggling. And that was like a big thing with me, like in particular, when I turned pro, my sponsors were the ultimate, we'll play good and we'll keep helping you. So that wasn't the emotional support I needed. I needed to know that I had people believing in me and encouraging me, not, having like a, a time frame or an expiration date on this support so if you're if you're turning professional yeah you need to have a support system or you're you're really gonna struggle because it's such an isolated life and if you're on your own emotionally already or financially you're gonna it's gonna be hard it's gonna be really hard uh and then last question just finish this sentence for me professional golf is too slow. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Awesome. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Really enjoyed having you on making the turn. 
Um, I will link all of your social media in the description box for this video, but just go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you, where they can follow along with what you're doing moving forward. I mean, YouTube's probably the easiest one. Just type in Andrew Jensen. It'll be the first thing that pops up. And then, uh, I mean, I have all the other accounts trying to always grow my Instagram account, but I'm not a girl in a bikini, so it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, Andrew S. Jensen on Instagram. It's kind of where I, I show a little bit more behind the scenes, but YouTube is uh, definitely where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of Making the Turn. Got to give a huge thank you to Andrew Jensen for joining the podcast today. If you don't follow him, if you're not subscribed to him on YouTube or following him on Instagram, make sure that you do. He has some really awesome content. It's super cool to see uh, the videos that he's producing. The editing and the video skills are ridiculous, especially for someone whose first job is to play professional golf. So once again, huge shout out to Andrew for coming on the podcast. If you guys are new to the channel and you liked today's episode, please check out our other episodes of Making the Turn. This is episode 11, so we have 10 other ones already out on the channel. Uh, after I'm done talking, the playlist will be on the screen. So just click that button. You can watch any episode you want. We talk to all people involved in high-level golf. Uh, super excited that you guys were able to join us. If you feel the need, please hit that subscribe button. Helps me out a ton. Uh, excited to be able to continue to bring out some more Making the Turn videos. Also more of our Golfers in the Gym series as well, where we take you inside the gym. Make sure that you're not only working out, but working out in a way that's effective for your golf. So thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm Vince Drum and golf this is the making the turn podcast i'm out of here can't wait to see you guys again next week for episode 12 the last episode of season one of making the turn thanks for tuning in this is vince drama golf i'm out